It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Thursday, March 25th, 2021. I'm Erin Fulton with Raven News. A woman has been charged with manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide following a hit-and-run death of a bicyclist on Halibut Point Road earlier this month. 19-year-old Brooke Mulligan was arraigned on Wednesday afternoon. Police received a call from witnesses reporting the accident shortly after 6 a.m. on March 8th. According to an affidavit from the Sitka Police Department, witnesses reported that a dark-colored Jeep without its headlights on had crossed over the center line near the 2000 block of Halibut Point Road and hit the cyclist in the opposite lane. The driver then allegedly drove off without exiting the vehicle. The cyclist, 20-year-old Terry Carlson Jr., later died from his injuries at the Mount Edgecombe Medical Center. Police found the damaged Jeep at Mulligan's home around a mile and a half from the crash site. According to the affidavit, Mulligan told officers that she was in an accident and that she had used methamphetamine the previous evening. They found a glass pipe in the vehicle and residue was sent off to the state crime lab. In addition to the manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide charges, Mulligan is also charged with tampering with physical evidence and leaving the scene of an accident involving injury or death. Cash bail was set at $500,000, and Mulligan was ordered not to operate a motor vehicle, use illegal controlled substances, or have direct or indirect contact with the victim's family. She was also ordered not to discuss the case with her father, Richard Mulligan, who has been charged with tampering with evidence and hindering prosecution in the case. Mulligan is being held at the Sitka jail. A preliminary hearing date was set for April 2nd if she is in custody and April 12th if she's out of custody. The Alaska State Legislature and the Coast Guard have recognized the Yakutat Fire Department for a search and rescue effort last August. The team of firefighters and volunteers responded after a man fell into the water in the middle of the night during a storm. KCAW's Erin McKinstry reports. The nearest Coast Guard station is over 200 nautical miles from Yakutat, and the town has no official search and rescue team. It's often up to local volunteers to respond in an emergency, especially when weather conditions are bad and time is of the essence, says Fire Chief Casey Mapes. We'll do whatever you got, especially if we got somebody in trouble in the water or fire or wherever, however. We do what we can make the best out of it. We're short, chronically always, on the proper types of gear that we need, but we improvise and, and we get it done. Mapes led the effort last August to rescue a crew member on the fishing vessel provider, Franklin Fox, who'd fallen off of a ladder into Monte Bay and disappeared. Volunteers endured gale-force winds and heavy rain while they searched the water on skiffs and scoured the beaches with flashlights, calling Fox's name. The bad weather caused the provider to crash against the dock where Mapes stood while he waited for a volunteer diver to resurface. He says all they could think about were the responders who were putting their lives at risk and the man they were searching for. Well, that guy out there needs you. Yeah. There ain't nobody else on this whole planet that can help him but you. So you got to do what you got to do. By the time the diver pulled the body to the surface, more than an hour and a half had passed since Fox had fallen in. Mapes and two others scaled the slippery ladder and pulled Fox onto the nearby vessel. They administered CPR before transporting him to the local clinic where he was pronounced dead. Mabe says he thinks they received recognition because they responded quickly with a large group of volunteers, despite the dangerous conditions. If they'd waited for the Coast Guard, they may not have found the body. It was above and beyond. Um, we didn't have to do that. Probably shouldn't have done that if you want to get your rule book out. But in my mind, uh, under circumstances like that, you, 
sometimes need to bend the rules a little bit to try to do what's the best thing. This isn't Mapes' first dangerous search and rescue. He's been with the fire department for 36 years, and he can think of many times when he and others have responded, even when they don't know if they'll make it back alive. I just have always had that creed about me that I don't much care when it's time. I'm going to go. And if I get to come back, then I get to come back. But I'll sleep good at night knowing that I win, no matter what. Mabe says this is the first time the fire department and local volunteers have received official recognition for their search and rescue efforts. I'm really thankful that we were able to uh, get him back and bring some closure there for his family and crewmates and get all of our guys out of there safely. And I'm really thankful for the recognition of my department and all of the various community volunteers that came forward. He hopes it will inspire more volunteers to respond in the future when the need arises. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Erin McKinstry. The state of Alaska, a former governor and a host of municipalities, trade groups and businesses have filed to defend the Tongass National Forest exemption from a Clinton-era rule that limits development on federal land. Eric Stone has more from Alaska's Energy Desk. The Trump administration decided to get rid of the roadless rule for the Tongass last year. Shortly afterwards, a group of tribes, conservation groups, fishermen, and tourism companies sued the federal government, seeking to overturn the decision. They say the decision to lift the rule on more than 9 million acres of the Tongass is based on a flawed environmental analysis and ignores the input of Alaska Native tribes and the public. But the state and the rest of the coalition looking to defend the exemption for the Tongass say the rulemaking process was proper and that an exemption is critical to the state's economy. Robert Venables is executive director of Southeast Conference, an economic development group. He says projects in the Tongass are already held to high standards under federal laws and regulations. What really is the issue in in my mind is having a conversation of how does Alaska really access and control and have more of a conversation in how the forest is managed. Because this is very unique where you have almost 96% of the region in direct federal control. Venable says the roadless rule places unnecessary hurdles in front of development. He points specifically to renewable energy projects. While developers can apply for exemptions to the roadless rule, and most are granted, he says the rule adds to the cost and the time required to complete projects. This is not about extraction resources. This is about every single economic sector needing, uh, having unique needs uh, for for the forest and Uh, we need a management plan that can reflect that. Roadless rule supporters disagree. They see increased resource extraction and development as an inevitable consequence of the rule going away in Alaska. President Joel Jackson from the organized village of Cake says he's concerned development could hurt the region's other economic drivers. Our region before COVID was heavily relied on tourism and sport fishing and commercial fishing and subsistence fishing. And uh, it still is. And those jobs, those those areas provide way more jobs and more economic value to southeast Alaska. Jackson says it's also a threat to Alaska Native tribes' way of life, since they harvest food and medicine from the forest and nearby waters. Ketchikan's city and borough have joined the state in defending the exemption, City Mayor Bob Sievertson says development doesn't have to hurt the environment. 
Well, there's mitigation for everything we do. We have the technology today to do construction and other things that uh, uh, would lessen the impact on uh, environmental issues, whether we got to put in fish culverts or fences, uh, the design and placement of the roads, uh, all those types of things. Roadless rural advocates say that logging and other development, though, could accelerate climate change since the Tongass stores vast amounts of carbon. Other parties defending the exemption include the City of Craig, Statewide and Southeast Chambers of Commerce, electric utilities, shipping companies, and resource development advocacy groups. For Alaska's Energy Desk, I'm Eric Stone in Ketchikan. The federal government held its ground Wednesday against calls to roll back restrictions on cruise ship sailings. That's despite mounting pressure from the industry and advocates like Senator Lisa Murkowski. In Alaska, the rapidly approaching cruise season, a billion-dollar industry, is still at stake. KTOO's Claire Strempel reports. There are two major roadblocks when it comes to large cruise ships returning to Alaska waters. One of them is Canada's closure to large foreign ships. The other is the Federal Conditional Sailing Order, a set of rules laid down by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention aimed at curbing major COVID-19 outbreaks on cruise ships. It replaced the stricter no-sail order from March 2020, but has proved stringent enough to delay cruises so far. On Wednesday, a major cruise industry group called on the CDC to lift those rules. Cruise Lines International Association wants U.S. cruising to resume by early July. The group says accelerated vaccine rollouts in the U.S. and examples from Europe and Asia of outbreak-free limited cruising are reasons to open up the industry. Last week, Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski pushed the CDC to give a timeline for when Alaska businesses can expect cruising to resume. She said the state is moving fast on vaccinations and ready for tourists. But the guidance coming from CDC does not reflect that preparedness. We've been struggling in trying to get the economy back on track when 60 percent of your tourists that come to the state of Alaska come by cruise ship. We've got a conditional sale order in place that's effectively a no-sale order. But in an email to Tradewinds News, the CDC said its guidelines will remain in effect until November. That is, after the 2021 season. Before the pandemic, Alaska had some of the busiest cruise ports in the nation. Cruising contributed more than $1.2 billion in direct spending and more than 20,000 jobs, according to a Federal Maritime Commission report. But loosened CDC restrictions alone won't bring large cruise ships back to Alaska ports. There's still the issue of Canada's cruise ship ban. For KTOO, I'm Claire Strimple. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.